Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. Glad you're spending part of your day with me. I hope you're staying healthy, I hope you're staying safe, and I hope that you're staying happy. We have a big show for you today. A little bit later on, Stephen R. Bowen uh, joins us. He is a historian who's won a bunch of awards. He's written a bunch of books about Canadian history and world history. He's back right now with a book called The Company, which is the adventurous and complex story of the Hudson Bay Company, a story that he says is the story of modern Canada's creation. We'll get to him in just a little while. First up, though, my next guest comes to answer one of the most pressing questions that we have these days during the pandemic. What do you watch? How many times have you been asked that? What are you watching? Have you seen anything good? Well, Christian Bauvelt is one of the co-authors of a new book called What to Watch Next. And it is a compendium of suggestions about what to binge, what not to binge, and other shows that you can just sit back and enjoy. You might learn something or it might just help you pass the time. We began by talking about binge watching. Is it the right way to watch TV? This is what he had to say. Binging can actually cover up the flaws of a show, I think, to some extent. I think when, I think when a show airs from week to week, that can be the true test. Mm -hmm. Some of these Netflix series that you see, you know, it's like, if you watch them all at once in one go, it kind of covers up some of the, you know, some of the mediocrities that may be in there. But if it was week to week, it'd be like, you know, that was pretty bad. <laughs> you know? Or you wouldn't go back. That as well. Binging is generally overrated. I, I question the whole idea of being in this sort of second golden age of TV in a way, actually on account of that. Um, so yeah, no, I'm, my, my feelings, I think, are a bit aligned with yours in that regard. So what do you think then about the second golden age of television? You say you question it. Uh, what questions do you have about it? Well, I think it's, it, there's just such volume. There's just so much content that there can be a bit of a, uh, an emphasis just on how much there is rather than how good. I feel like, you know, when you see a show that's really great, that's really extraordinary every now and then, um, they certainly exist. Um, I think The Crown is one. Uh, I can't wait for, uh, I mean, the season four here is just fantastic. I can't wait for everyone to see it. Um, you know, it makes you realize, oh, okay, that's what really incredible TV is. And then, and then you might think, oh yeah, maybe some other things, you know, along the way, you know, weren't quite as sharp as they might've been. I think it's just, people are confusing volume with quality. I would argue that The Americans, which was on at pretty much the same time, sort of overlapped, I think, The Sopranos and Mad Men, two shows which were held up as exemplars of, of the golden age, the second golden age of television. I would argue that The Americans, it wasn't as flashy, perhaps as those other shows, but was equally as good in terms of quality. Super secret identities, no one has any idea who they are. Well, they look like us, they speak better English than we do. We are Philip and Elizabeth Jennings. We have been for a very long time. And I agree, I mean, that show was really extraordinary, but and also just made this kind of epical statement about, you know, living in America at a time uh, that is, now thought of with such nostalgia, you know, the 80s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, but what, what that time really meant and what it meant for the culture at large, you know, wow, it's, uh, that was an impressive piece of television. I, I completely agree. And an example of one where, even though it was a bit longer, you know, was like over 80 episodes, I think, uh, it really didn't feel like it was just dragged out for the point of just producing more content. How did you choose 
the shows that are in here. This book is jam-packed with recommendations. Uh, it, there is so much television to choose from. How do you whittle it down to the shows that we are, are given here in the book? You know, I, I mean, for, for my chapter in particular, the uh, what to watch when you want to learn something new, I wanted to make it as personal as possible mm. because ultimately I, think, I find personal lists to be more interesting than, than group aggregate lists, um, even though I've contributed to many and, and commissioned many group <laughs> lists in the past. When I was at BBC Culture, I did that every year. I did like 100 greatest comedies of all time, 100 greatest films of the 21st century, all of that, and get like hundreds of critics to weigh into those. But uh, I, think, I think when you can be a little bit more idiosyncratic when it comes down to personal taste, that's where it's interesting. So I try to put in some uh, shows there like... Uh, great old amusement parks or now hear this on PBS here in the U S that like, you know, are just things that may, maybe literally I'm the only one who likes them, but I think other people would like them too. If they just saw them, I didn't want to have too much of a recency bias. Um, there was, there was a push at one time to include tiger King for instance. And I was like, no, no, that, that can't be in there. This, this is just a fad. It was just something, some kind of collective, you know, hallucination that we all had some some collective madness at the start of the pandemic. It will be completely forgotten. It will not age well. And let's not have it in there. And and thankfully, they listened to me and it is not in the book. You're listening to my interview with Christian Blauvelt, co-author of What to Watch Next. It's interesting when you think of something like that, because at the beginning of the pandemic, it lived at the very center of popular culture. It was everywhere. It's all anybody wanted to talk to me about. And I eventually got to it. I, I, I watched it. And um, I don't know. I, I, it's because at the time I was kind of taken by it. I, I, was, I got sucked into the story. Uh, now that I hear, you know, they're making the Joe Exotic movie, I find myself not caring. I find myself not terribly interested in it. I think that my my level of intrigue ended when that last episode aired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. It's uh, and and I think that's that is in keeping with just the exploitation value of it. I mean, basically, this and I think you could say that about a lot of true crime documentary series that there is almost kind of like they're, they're the new grindhouse cinema in a way. They're the new exploitation storytelling that they find something that's really sleazy or marginal or about some odd uh subculture and just exploit the hell out of it and it you know that to me ultimately means that there isn't a great deal of respect for the participants or for what is ultimately or even for what you're ultimately trying to say i mean what was tiger king ultimately trying to say it was just, it was trying to raise awareness about about uh, you know these private zoos. I mean, I guess, but how many people really then went and donated to funds to like shut those down? Or I don't know. I mean, I just don't really see how it converted in any way to change. And it seems to me like it was just momentarily diverting. And uh, I don't know. That was the kind of thing. Like, yeah, I don't. I don't want this in this book. And and to DK's credit, they they agreed with me. What are some of the shows uh, that really stand out for you that you put on the list? Well, I already mentioned The Crown, which I love. And I think people uh, are going to really enjoy this fourth season. It's, uh, it's incredible. And Gillian Anderson is beyond uh, my, my wildest expectations as Maggie Thatcher. I, I, I could not get enough of her in that show. So extraordinary. And 
I, yeah, I mean, to, to have the, the balance between Thatcher and Diana in the season, I think is really, really amazing. I think people are going to be hooked on this more than ever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was, it was really just trying to be as personal as possible. Like I wanted to have shows in there that really did mean something to me. And, you know, whether, whether that is, um, you know, I mentioned great old amusement parks. Like that's like this very quirky little documentary. It's only an hour. It's just a one-off. People come to parks for lots of different reasons. Ooh, my school had a field trip for whoever was good and didn't get suspended. They got to come. We came with our church. You never got suspended. Not this year. That's from this great Pittsburgh-based documentarian named Rick Seabach, who pioneered this whole genre of films called scrapbook documentaries where you focus on something very minute and turn it into a whole film so he has like a documentary on hot dogs and a documentary on ice cream and, <laughs> and they're wonderful they're absolutely wonderful and they and it's sometimes when you distill something down to something so small you can then tell a much bigger story about the culture at large so everything that i picked here was it, it had to have some kind of relevance for me in mm. that way yeah i mean of course i'm gonna i'm gonna get anthony bourdain in there because i love his show so much especially his cnn show parts unknown and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I want to get uh, Rick Steves Europe in there. I love that guy. I love that show. You know, that was not on the original list for this, but I, I fought for that and, and got it in there. And The interesting connection between Anthony Bourdain and Rick Steves, because those shows could not be any more different, really. Exactly. Uh, but the interesting thing about them is that I think both of those people as television presenters and travel log uh, presenters, they emphasize that travel uh, is good for the soul, that it opens your mind, that it creates empathy, and that eventually, if you go around the world and you start seeing how everyone lives, you really understand that everybody just wants the same stuff. We want uh, food on our table, a safe place for our families to live, and, and uh, you know, uh, just very basic kind of primal things. We're all kind of the same, and we're connected by this. And that's what I thought those two shows uh, did and do so very well. They are like little machines for empathy, uh, wrapped up in a kind of, you know, in one case, a very flashy travel show, and in another one, a fairly straightforward one. Exactly. That's so well said. They are machines for empathy. Uh, and they're both fundamentally about the idea that travel can connect you more to humanity around you mm-hmm. and can, can open your eyes in ways that you didn't, that you didn't even know was possible. Yeah. And even though they're so different, I mean, Rick, Rick Steves is very studious and a little fussy and, yep. and always wears his button down shirts. And I mean, I love that guy to death. I, I would swear that a lot of the broadcasting that I've done in, in, in my career, I, I appear on TV in New York at all is actually very influenced by him. Uh, you know, just his wry sense of humor and everything. And then, of course, Bourdain is so different, and yet they're basically serving the same mission. Since I've arrived in this country, I'm either drinking or hungover. We continue my conversation with Christian Blauvelt. He is the co-author of a book on stands right now called What to Watch Next, and it answers one of the big questions that we've all had during the pandemic. What are you watching? I'm out of new TV shows to watch. I need something else. What are you watching? Well, this book supplies thousands of suggestions for shows that you can watch and enjoy. We begin the interview by talking about Fosse Verdon. Now, this was a miniseries about 
the choreographer and film director Bob Fosse and his sometimes wife, Gwen Verdon. Uh, they were played by Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams. Michelle Williams actually went on to win a lot of awards for this, including an Emmy Award and a Golden Globe Award. And this is where we start the conversation by talking about her performance as Gwen Verdon in Fosse Verdon. Just what she did with her voice. Mm-hmm. Completely transformed as she sounds... Um, you know, nothing like what you've heard Michelle Williams sound like before. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary bit of acting. And and yeah, it's one of those things like, I mean, I'm a bit of a, a Broadway geek at times too. So I, I was familiar with a good bit of this. But I feel like that even if you barely knew who Bob Fosse and Gwen Verdon were and, and are not familiar with their cultural significance, you would still be drawn into that, mm-hmm. that series. And the way they recreated some of the musical numbers, I mean, just extraordinary. And at Chernobyl, we mentioned, um, again, a history lesson of a sort, uh, but one that isn't uh, in any way a dry history lesson from Mr. Parker's history class. You know, it for me was uh, something that really brought something in recent-ish history, something that I lived through and certainly heard about while it was happening, brought it to life in a way that that was, uh, again, really vivid and, for me, uh, really exciting television. And one that I think really will endure. I mean, that was definitely the test for me in, in selecting uh, the entries in, in the uh, what to watch when you want to learn something new chapters that no, these have to be things that will endure because Tiger King won't endure. Chernobyl, I think, will. Chernobyl is a story that you could do the exact same, have the exact same structure about the pandemic now. You know, and, and people are saying, well, Craig Mason should make a documentary, a series or a long form uh, narrative series that almost plays like a documentary uh, about the pandemic now because it is about systemic failures, structural failures, uh, when institutions fail their people. And, uh, and I think in that regard, let alone even just the environmental uh, aspect to the Chernobyl story that will cause that story to resonate for a long time to come. Will Marie Kondo resonate for a long time to come? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. I don't, you know, some of those things, like people, people always, you know, are looking to improve their lives in the smallest of ways. I think it'll be similar to Bob Ross, where just, I mean, a few months ago, I was watching a lot of Bob Ross, actually, and just so soothing and so hypnotic almost. It puts you into like a trance when you're watching him paint those happy little trees or, and he's saying, oh, I'll put some uh, crooked little trees here. Crooked, they're, they're going to Washington. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was incredible. I thought today we'd just do a very simple little scene that I hope you'll enjoy. Let's start with a little two inch brush and a touch of the lizard crimson. I think there's always a room for that. There's a room for slow TV. You know, there's so many, so much that's so fast today. Let's slow things down. You're listening to my interview with Christian Blauvelt, co-author of What to Watch Next in stores now. Before the pandemic, TV's just always there. You turn it on when you wanted to. We love going to the movies, but we only go on the weekends. I think now people have a, a new appreciation for just how important uh, listening to music that comforts you is and watching a television show that comforts you is. What do you think will happen when all this is over? Do you, do you, I hope that people still have that regard for the art. It's been dispiriting to see other places around the world. Uh, well, I mean, in the U.S., the arts are always under attack in one way or another in terms of government wanted to pull funding or whatever. But even just seeing in the U.K. how there's been a real desire to money from arts funding and urging people who are involved in the arts as their career 
to find another career or just mm-hmm. get out of it. If you're, if you, if you know, you're a ballerina, you should, you know, uh, t- take on, you know, s- uh, something in engineering or computer yeah. science. And that's, and that's been sad to see, but I think that this time has ultimately made us realize just how important our choices are. And, and I, I would like to think that it would at least, res- and I think it has to some extent resulted in more thoughtful viewing, more thoughtful choices in terms of the music we listen to, the books that we read. Um, and, and I would like to think that even, you know, after the pandemic that would exist to s- some extent. I mean, I don't think necessarily the changes that have occurred in terms of the way that we consume media have been that devastating. I mean, of course I love going to a movie theater. Mm-hmm. Of course. I mean, I love the big screen experience. That's, you know, why I'm a culture journalist in the first place, practically. Uh, but I am I am glad that at least we've been able to take this time to sort of think about just the full diversity of options that are out there for us to enjoy. If people can only look at one show from your list, you've mentioned The Crown already, what else would it be? <laughs> I would say really just to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. I would say, all right, so everyone talks about how great Ken Burns is and, and his documentaries are great, no doubt. But I would want to recommend just for something that's so different and that is kind of like at the intersection of movies and TV and is really something that, um, you know, I think was so eye-opening to me. I would recommend the series that wasn't talked about nearly as much in the early 2000s called Martin Scorsese's The Blues. And it's the series that he curated. He directed the first episode, but basically they're like a collection of individual films, um, each having a different director. He directed one, you know, so each are essentially like a film, but they work together as a TV series as well. And they're such an interesting way into the idea of the music documentary and very different from like what Ken Burns did with his jazz series, which was a very linear, almost Wikipedia style uh, history. And, uh, and this, is, this series, The Blues, to me shows like how you can really shake up the form and how TV really allows you to do some formally interesting things. That was my interview with Christian Blauvelt. Pick up the book, it's called What to Watch Next and never again worry about having nothing to watch. My guest via Zoom from his home in Alberta is Globe and Mail best-selling author and historian Stephen R. Bone. Perhaps you've read some of his books. They include 1494, How a Family Feud in Medieval Spain Divided the World in Half, Madness, Betrayal, and the Lash, and Merchant Kings. Uh, he has now written a new book called The Company. And it's about something a little closer to home. It's about the Hudson's Bay Company. And his premise is, is that it is also the story of modern Canada's creation. To begin the story, we go back to 1670 and his assertion that most historians have missed a giant chunk of the tale of the Hudson's Bay Company. Here's Stephen R. Bone. You say that other historians have missed about a quarter of the story of the Hudson's Bay. How so? It has to do with um, the perspective of, uh, not the perspective of Indigenous peoples, but the story and the extent to which the company was integrated with Indigenous societies. Mm-hmm. It took a very narrow definition of what is a company's employee. And if you just say, oh, it's people who signed legal contracts in London and were sent over, you're going to have one definition of the company. But if you're dealing with societies that did didn't necessarily, well, they didn't at all keep legal records of things, then 
if you, all you're looking at is uh, documents in a London archive of who was sent over, you're going to miss a whole aspect of the story. I mean, probably half the people who worked for the, the company over the years were, you know, Cree or Métis or various different, um, you know, cultures and the blends between the company. So, I mean, if you're completely ignoring that part of the so story, you're not really going to have a very good understanding of what the company was, who the company's people were and how it transformed society or how society transformed it or what its role was in the greater history for hundreds of years. Well, would the company have been able to exist if they hadn't been connected with indigenous communities? I would argue ab absolutely not. Like from the very earliest beginning, um, the company was as much a cultural enterprise as it was a business enterprise. The two were completely linked. And, um, what, you know, when it first, in the 1670s, as it first started sending ships across the Atlantic Ocean and into the, you know, the far coast of, Wed of Hudson's Bay, um, they didn't know anything about those people or those societies. They were perched along along the rim of that frozen bay and they inadvertently tied into pre-existing indigenous commercial networks which extended deep into the continent through those riverways. Now for a hundred years the, the company didn't even venture farther inland and yet the goods that the company was dealing with, you know, the, the things that they had that were in great demand were anything to do with metal and gunpowder. I mean all those goods were dispersing throughout uh, North America as far as the Rocky Mountains. But the company's employees, if you want to take that very narrow definition of them as being people who signed contracts, weren't the ones doing any of that interior work. People would arrive on the coast, sometimes in flotillas of up to 50 canoes full of, of, of goods, of, of furs that they had spent years collecting. And some of these people were quite well known. And they were essentially using the company's outposts as wholesale distributors for their own merchant enterprises. And why is it, do you think, then, that those stories didn't make it into previous books that retell the history of the company? I believe it's because it's, if it's very easy to fall into a trap of perspective. And I, I think if, if you just go and get the original travel documents and you look at all the original, you know, explorers' notes or, or any of the information that exists in archives, and you, you start telling the story from the perspective of the person who wrote the documents, which is the natural thing to do and it's very easy to do, then you're going to be automatically seeing everything through the window of that person who wrote that document. And what I had tried to do myself was to say, yes, 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 but that person is interacting with all kinds of people and they have a point of view. And I tried to imagine myself as, as uh, you know, I have a big map of, of Canada on the wall and I imagined myself floating floating above the situation and to say, yes, this person is describing that they're doing this, but wh what would a person above it see that was going on as opposed to what was going on in the mind of the person writing their own personal journal? And as soon as I made that mental shift, what I saw was uh, a whole bunch of people and interactions happening that were occurring independently of the person writing the journal. And that automatically changed the story and the way that I tried to write it would be almost as if I was setting out to write, you know, what would this sound like if I was writing an adventure novel, you know, from the third person universal perspective, as opposed to, you know, following someone's narrow journey. You're listening to my interview with historian Stephen R. Bone, author of The Company, now available wherever you buy fine books. And as soon as I did that, you realize, oh, okay, 
now we can start to have a more broad appreciation for all the, the dynamic interactions and the, the world that existed beyond the narrow confines of the Hudson's Bay or beyond the narrow understanding of, of certain people. And, you know, there's a couple of classic examples. One of them is, um, you know, the journeys of Anthony Appende in the 1750s. I mean, he's considered to be a great famous Canadian explorer. And there's, I believe there's university residence towers named after him and roads and monuments to his name. And I think there's a famous big giant roundabout in the city of Edmonton that's called the Anthony Hende, you know, traffic circle or something like that. But I mean, who was Anthony Hende? He was a very interesting fellow, but what did he actually do? Um, from Hudson's Bay, the company said, well, maybe we should start to see a little bit what's happening on in this obviously complex and dynamic world that we know nothing about. So how about you travel with this fellow named Atikashish. Atikashish was a well-known Cree trader who had been operating his own commercial empire, essentially, doing you know, significant multi-year trade networks all the way as far as to the west of Red Deer and Alberta and the, within the Rocky Mountains and working his way back with you know, up to 50 canoes with, with goods each year. And um, every second year, I guess it would be. And so Henthony, uh, Hende just hitched a ride along with this fellow and was taken on a well-established commercial route that this fellow was constantly doing year after year after year. So what was considered to be a, a great exploration from the point of view of Hende is considered to be a standard you know, trade route for someone else. Do you think that the uh, omission of the indigenous people uh, at the beginning of this signifies a, a systemic racism at the time as these these documents were being written. No, I don't think, I'm not going to go with the word racism. I think, I mean, part of it is that you're dealing with societies that didn't keep written records. So mm. any historian going back later, who historians tend to deal with written records, if you're going and looking for it, you're not seeing it. Well, like we were discussing earlier, I mean, it's, it's harder to leap from that point of view of looking at something through someone's eyes to taking a third person universal view of what's going on. So, mm -hmm. and I, at the time, I don't believe it would be accurate to say at all that any of the, the company's employees would have been racist in, in any sense. I mean, those people who were coming over from England in, in those early 100, first 130 years of that business operating were people who knew very well that they were going to a foreign land and part of what was going to be expected of them was living there because there's no communication, there's no phones, there's no internet, there's no maps even of what's going on. And of course, when you're there for that long and you're dealing with these societies and people that are coming to trade with you, it's incumbent upon you to learn their customs and learn their language. And there's a great deal of knowledge about the, the ceremony and, and, the, and the customs that happened before any large scale trade happened at the company's forts. Um, often these people would have married into the local societies. And um, that means having wives and children and extended family who are all part of that larger world. And over time, the children, you know, for hundreds of years, there's, there's mixed heritage children who are the result of the unions of these people. And those are the people who ended up being the company's primary workforce. So it, it can't really be said that there's any kind of racism because those... I mean, those are integrated, blended societies. And I think that's the extent. That, that is one of the key things that has been overlooked is that the extent to which the company was fully integrated into indigenous societies and that the company's main workforce, especially if you're considering the more, the more fluid, um, less formal workforce, which nevertheless constituted a great deal of its, its 
work that was there was uh, done by people who were at least part indigenous. Wikipedia remembers Sir George Simpson as a Scottish explorer and colonial governor of the Hudson's Bay Company during the period of its greatest power. My guest today, Stephen R. Bone, the author of a new history of the Hudson's Bay Company, simply called The Company, and you'll find it at the top of the Globe and Mail bestseller charts, remembers him a little differently. He calls Governor George Simpson one of the greatest villains in Canadian history. <laughs> He's a repellent fellow. <laughs> I mean, yeah, every time something's written about Simpson, he gets taken down further a notch and you know, I don't know that he has much further to fall after. I don't have much good to say about him at all. I, I've written a lot of books and I looked at a lot of people throughout history and there's really hard to find anyone as foul as him. I mean, he's, um, you know, I don't like to use the word evil, but he's just repulsive. Um, he absolutely was a racist. And like I said, I don't throw that word around lightly. He absolutely was a misogynist. He had, before joining the company, he had worked you know, in the British uh, part of the slave trade that was going on. I mean, he developed these attitudes towards people that they could be used and abused. And, um, well, he didn't just, he had a very negative view of all Indigenous people and thought that they were there to be exploited or managed or pushed around or bullied or he would ply them with hard liquor and try and deceive them. Um, he was also completely fell to all of his employees, too. Um, even the ones from Scotland, he, you know, he abused and tricked them. But he, he also did something which forever changed, I believe, the culture of Western Canada as it developed. He introduced policies whereby the mixed heritage children of his own officers were no longer to be considered for promotions within the company. And that all started to begin in the 1830s. So the company had been around for 150 years, but finally at this time, he started to discriminate against the people who were best suited to be in the company and the people who had been running the company's field operations for many, many generations. He, he, he discouraged his officers from having indigenous or mixed heritage wives and began to, you know, he brought a, a wife over from Scotland for himself, despite the fact that he had had multiple indigenous mistresses and dozen like he, by some counts he has over 20, 20 children um that he took no responsibility for and cast aside and um just like he did with all of his mistresses so he brought himself uh, an english wife over and then he let it be known that um no one was going to get any promotions within the company anymore unless they also had english wives and that you know he set this tone whereby you know outward discrimination against people, which completely ran counter to 150 years of history before that in the company's corporate culture. Um, yeah, he completely changed the corporate culture, which then integrated itself throughout society because then there was no longer this sort of easy fluid interactions between various peoples anymore coming together with the company as the catalyst for, for the cu cultural blending. He sort of set the company aside as a more like uh, a snooty imperialist entity that was sneering downward at people that he didn't 
directly <laughs> bring over for employment purposes. And that completely changed the corporate culture. And, and of course, that stretched through, you know, it spread throughout all of the society that was developing in the 19th century and set a very negative and bad tone for things that happened later when other, when other settlers began arriving in the later 19th century. They encountered this pre-existing, um, you know, negative cultural hierarchy that he had established. Well, how is the story of the Hudson's Bay Company the story of modern Canada's uh, creation? I mean, it's a good, there's multifaceted answers that are possible with that. I mean, one, of course, is that, you know, it gave the company's activities in the fur trade in broad, broader sense, gave birth to what we would call the Métis culture and Métis people, which is um, there are hundreds of thousands of people, if, if not millions, who, who um, would trace their descent back through that somehow assuming it, it could be traced i mean that's the whole origin of the of the of that culture and those people comes from those interactions between you know the companies overseas foreign workers who were coming in and the societies that they blended in with and so it's hard to underestimate the extent to which that you know particularly in you know anything west of the great lakes and prairies and but it's also true that because the company was the sole, it, because it was a monopoly, it was a British monopoly, which monopoly at that time meant it was free from British competitors, not mm -hmm. that they actually had any control over anything. I mean, for vast period of time, you know, they had no control over anything. They were just guests and hosts being hosted by local societies and they very well knew that. But because they were the only non-indigenous presence in a whole bunch of um, regions such as the prairies and all of what's British Columbia now, but they were also down in Idaho, Washington, Oregon. Um, it ended up affecting the way that the political boundaries were decided between the United States and Britain once those two massive empires were struggling and battling for who was going to control all of that land. That, that you know, by the mid 19th century, that's a development. And, and um, well, I, I don't think. British Columbia wouldn't really be British Columbia if it wasn't for the presence of the Hudson's Bay Company there. But it's also, it's also true, I think, when you're dealing with an entity that existed for so long and was so pervasive and integrated into everything that was going on in um, North American, Northern North American culture, you have to appreciate for change over time. And so I believe that there's a lot of people who have, you know, they have their view of the company as being this one thing and they kind of define it. Oh, it's an evil, uh, gigantic, controlling British monopoly. And that might have been true in the mid 19th century, but it certainly wasn't, you know, true for, you know, 150 years before that. And so the, the, the perspective of change over time is often missing too. You're listening to my interview with Stephen R. Bone, the award-winning author of The Company, now available wherever you buy fine books. What was the most surprising thing that you found while you were doing research for the book? The most surprising, yeah, I, I think the most surprising thing is the extent of information that exists out there. I mean, it was just overwhelming when there's, there's vast quantity of information and, and it's all more or less been collected and published and it's not very difficult to obtain that access to that information at all, especially in the digital age. I mean, you know, it's a lot of it is in print and I expected that I was going to have to be going out of my way to, you know, find and search out some of these documents and really a lot of it ended up being 
digitized and I could go there and read it without even living, leaving my living room, which was actually a very time consuming thing. And yeah, and the extent to which certain things had been overlooked and never mentioned and I never saw any reference to them ever. Small things such as, um, I think it was Graham's, uh, he was a, a Hudson's Bay officer who lived, you know, sometime in the mid to late 18th century at, you know, Fort or at York Factory on Western Hudson's Bay. I mean, he was very insightful and he wrote a, a whole book on his life and adventures and the customs and cultures of trade along Hudson's Bay during that time. And he's one of the ones who described a lot of the different customs and a lot of the different um, interactions between the indigenous peoples, primarily the Cree and his traders who were there. I mean, he wrote something. As soon as I read it, it put a big star opened up in my brain. Um, he recorded that one day he was dealing with some of the, you know, going around talking to some of the Cree traders who he normally dealt with. And there was a fellow there who was a different person. I think he referred to him as an Archinithu. And I, you know, that actually translates into someone who would be a member of the Blackfoot Confederacy or, you know, from near the Rocky Mountains in Western Alberta era, area. And he was talking to this young, a young guy and through an interpreter inquiring like, how are, what are you doing here? Like what brings you all the way here, thousands and thousands of kilometers away from a land we hardly know anything about. And the guy just kind of said, uh, you know, I'm just kind of here checking it out, seeing what seeing what the world is like. And he said, well, are you going to come next year? How about we start negotiating and organizing some trade between us? And the guy said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, well, why not? Why aren't you going to come? I don't like sitting in canoes. It's really annoying. And I don't like eating the fish that they always make me eat. You know, I live in the land of the buffalo. We ride horses and hunt buffalo. <laughs> he said, I'm never going to come back here. And the guy wanted a souvenir to take back, a, a frilly laced hat that he was going to bring back to give to his father so that his father could wear it when he was hunting buffaloes. <laughs> and that was an so the, you know, the 18th century world was much more dynamic and interesting than had previously been expressed. I mean, this was just a tourist who was traveling thousands of kilometers away with people that he didn't know all the way to the coast of Hudson's Bay, just so he could see what was going on. You know? And then he was going back, no, I'm never coming back again. I don't like the food here. You know, <laughs> it's just a, it's just such a, a small but revealing aspect of, you know, it's a very human human thing that's completely relatable. I never read about things like that anywhere. And yet those little stories are, you know, quite common, I would say, written within journals and documents that are around and not as much has been made of them has been could. And I tried to put little stories like that, the smaller stories within the greater story. And that gives you much... Uh, you know, it's much easier to bring the world alive if you're going to do that. And I really wanted, when people re read the company, I wanted them to get a sense of what the world was and really feel like this is a dynamic, interesting, living, breathing world with all kinds of people doing, pursuing their own interests, pursuing their own agendas that have nothing to do with just, just this strict, narrow, legalistic idea, oh, furs, guns, or whatever. You know, just to move beyond that, move move beyond that, and see what life was really like. That was my interview with historian Stephen R. Bone. Find his book, The Company, at the top of the Globe and Mail bestseller charts, and wherever you buy fine books. I also want to extend a big thank you to Christian Blauvelt, who joined me via Zoom from New York City. He's a co-author of What to Watch Next. Find that also right next to the company, wherever you buy fine books. As always, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. 
I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, and we'll talk again soon.